Before I start this week's episode, just a quick note of thanks to the photographer who took the photograph that adorns the cover art, and that was Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. The other thing this week seemed to have developed a bit of a cold. Not a huge problem. The show must go on, but I normally record this in one take. But this week I may have to pause it from time to time in order to cough. But as I said, the show must go on. So let's get cracking. Hello and welcome to this week's Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been a relatively quiet week this week, but what has been in the news is actually quite interesting. So we've got a bit on sanctions, a bit on money laundering, some work from the Financial Action Task Force, a couple of interesting fraud stories, and we'll end with a report on a case from the Supreme Court on restraint orders. Now let's start with sanctions. Now, we mentioned last week that the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, had carved out an exception for humanitarian works in the non-government-controlled areas of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. Well, this week, the Russia uh, sanctions EU exit amendment number 13 regulations have transposed that into law. Further amending regulations, the Russia sanctions EU exit amendment number 12 regulations, uh, made uh, changes to the sanctions regime, further restricting investments respecting land in Russia, persons connected with Russia, relevant entities, joint ventures, and so on. Finally, on the specifics of sanctions, licenses, and their ilk, the Department for International Trade has updated its guidance on additional duties on goods originating from Russia and Belarus. This is in addition to the tariffs announced in March and June this year. We also covered those in earlier editions of the Financial Crime Weekly. Finally, on a more generic level, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and the Office of International Sanctions Implementation, OFSI, as I mentioned earlier, have updated the guidance on Russian sanctions, which is available on their websites. Beyond the UK, as trailed last week in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, the European Union has agreed a sixth programme of sanctions against Russia. The sanctions impose a new import ban on Russian gold, strengthening the reporting requirements to tighten EU asset freezes, clarify that EU sanctions do not target the trade in agricultural products between third countries and Russia. Of course, it was announced just recently that Ukraine and Russia had reached an agreement under the auspices of the UN on wheat exportation. And the current sanctions imposed by the EU have been extended for a further six months and will be reviewed at the end of January 2023. Now, here's an interesting tidbit of a story we covered in a previous edition of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Now, that story was the seizure of the yacht Amadea by US enforcement officials who seized it in Fiji last month. The yacht, believed to belong to a Russian oligarch, has been revealing its secrets, or as I have described them before, trinkets. Good trinket, this one. The Guardian reports that the US Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco told the Aspen Security Forum on Wednesday that a suspected Fabergé egg had been found on board. These eggs, which are commissioned by the Russian royal family, well, which were commissioned by the Russian royal family for over 30 years before they were overthrown, uh, are quite rare, believed about only 50 in existence, probably fewer than 50 in existence. And 
Well, I keep being told they're priceless, but clearly they do have a price. Otherwise, this person wouldn't have got hold of one, if it does indeed turn out to be a Fabergé egg. Now that's it for sanctions. Let's leave that there, and we'll turn our attention to money laundering. News this week that the Financial Action Task Force has published a report which outlines recommendations on private sector information sharing to combat money laundering and to counter terrorist financing. While information is a, uh, sharing is a sensible response to dealing with money laundering, there are practical and legal limitations on financial services firms which can tend to operate in information silos. These information gaps are typically exploited by criminals, making it difficult to track suspicious transactions. The Financial Action Task Force indicate that by the use of collaborative analytics, drawing together data strands, and by developing other sharing initiatives, financial institutions should be able to generate a more coherent perspective on the task at hand and aim to mitigate money laundering and terrorist financing risks. The report provides assistance to all the jurisdictions susceptible to money laundering activity, aiming to assist them in the enhancement of existing systems, design, development and implementation uh, of imp information and collaboration initiatives among various private sector entities. Any such guidance must accord with uh, operative data protection and privacy rules so that the risks associated with increased sharing of personal data are appropriately taken into account. The value of evidence and information sharing, and intelligence sharing indeed, in other aspects of financial crime is not unknown. Only last week in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast we saw how intelligence sharing in the sanctions context has emboldened the robust response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. While collaboration between private sector operatives poses an enhanced range of technical issues to overcome, they're certainly worth surmounting, given the stakes. Finally, the Council of the European Union has renewed, with no changes, its list of EU terrorists, or those terrorists which pose a threat to the EU. This is a list of persons, groups and entities subject to restrictive measures with a view to combating terrorism. The renewal is for a further six months, which is fairly standard in that regard. Now, away from money laundering and to fraud. Insofar as coronavirus-related fraud and general incompetence, there have been two publications in the UK this week. The first is a follow-up on the work of the Public Accounts Committee from the Her Majesty's Treasury uh, response to the Bounce Back Loan Scheme. The Public Accounts Committee had been carrying out investigations into the various schemes designed around the United Kingdom's governments to coronavirus. Now, the Bounce Back Loan Scheme is a scheme which we've reported on before on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and it is riven through with fraud. The government agreed to accept all but one of the recommendations made by the Pub Public Accounts Committee with respect to the loan scheme. Now, given the speed with which the loan scheme was introduced, some difficulties might well have been expected. It was a critical time, not only in the United Kingdom, but for other jurisdictions as well, in their response to bolstering the economy due to the pandemic. But what the work of the Public Accounts Committee does indicate is that there are certainly lessons to be learned from the experience which ought not to be repeated. The second publication is, once more, from the Pub Public Accounts Committee and its assessment of the response of the United Kingdom government to the coronavirus pandemic. 
This time, the focus was the provision of personal protective equipment for use across a range of sectors. The Department for Health and Social Care, which of course was the main contracting party on behalf of the government, remains in dispute in relation to 176 contracts for PPE, that's personal protective equipment, as I said, with £2.7 billion of taxpayer money at risk, with little progress made in tackling potential fraudulent supplies of goods. In fact, the department admits that some of the 176 contracts may be of interest from a fraud perspective, but it was unwilling to divulge more than that, other than to say, well, we're engaging with the usual authorities to try and get to the root of it. That's a kind of standard response, really. Perhaps most strikingly, the department was unable to provide a specific figure for the scale of the fraud on the provision of PPE, but its best estimate, and it gives a range which is not helpful, is anywhere between 0.5 of 1% and 5% of the total expenditure on personal protective equipment, or PPE. This is quite a discrepancy when you consider that the total amount which was actually spent was £13 billion. Now, if we take those calculations, or rather if we take those percentages, that range that it was given, that puts the fraud losses at anywhere between £65 million or £650 million. Or to put it another way, and I've done this before in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast because governments love it. They love to have things measured by the size of a country or the number of something that could be employed. Well, it's either 2,609 new nurses or, if it's the higher figure of 650 million, 26,097 nurses. Now, that latter figure would have been half of the nurses promised by the Conservatives in their 2019 election manifesto. So the scale of the losses, even an estimate, and that estimate may itself be wrong, it could be higher, because there seems to be a general lack of understanding of the true scale of fraud, is a bit worrying. Now, the subject of fraud against public sector operatives or public sector bodies and the funds that they have though this time from cyber events, is one which was highlighted this week by the World Economic Forum. So contextually, it's relevant to the previous story. Now, because it was about cyber events or cyber attacks, it explained the importance of protections against cyber attacks for local authorities. And in fact, I would extend that principle to any public body. This is a particularly acute risk because of the increased use of digital technologies to deliver essential services to the public. The impact such attacks can have on public and social goods was demonstrated by the attack on the city of Baltimore in May 2019. Now, this is discussed in the World Economic Forum paper. Now, what happened then was the the cyber attack took out the government's computer systems and impacted the operation of its public services. Now, the rumoured ransom, what these attackers wanted, was 80,000 US dollars worth of cryptocurrency. Now, government officials did not want to be held to ransom, 
by these attackers, so they elected instead to sacrifice £6 million from the parks and recreation budget to pay to remedy the attack. Now, this is a, a, a crucial reminder that whatever the source of the loss to the public purse, whether it's a cyber attack or, as in the case of fraud within the coronavirus uh, response, as in the UK and, in fact, elsewhere in the world, the effect is to reduce the level of public funds available for essential services which benefit everybody. Now, final story this week, and we turn to the United Kingdom Supreme Court, which has delivered a significant judgment in the context of restraint orders and the proceeds of Crime Act 2002. The case is the Crown against Luckhurst. First, let's have a look at the facts. Luckhurst worked as an independent financial advisor. In the 1990s, he established a partnership for that purpose until it collapsed in 2016, which was around the time his problems were happening. Now, in 2014, two years before his uh, partnership collapsed, Luckhurst established a company, Aspirations Europe Limited, which introduced its clients to an investment scheme ran by others. In 2016, the investors commenced civil proceedings against Luckhurst, alleging fraud. And as part of that, they obtained uh, what's known as a worldwide freezing order, or an extraterritorial freezing order, which is an order which restrains the defendant from making use of their assets uh, so as to avoid a judgment debt. That's what freezing orders tend to be used for. Now, that was part of the litigation, and in commercial litigation like this, it can be relatively common. Freezing orders are discretionary. They're what we know in English law as an equitable remedy, and because of that, they're discretionary. And therefore, they allow, essentially, the defendant to use, so they don't totally freeze the defendant from the use of all of their assets, because they allow the defendant some day-to-day -day expenses and sometimes payment of legal fees, which, of course, this freezing order did. Now, these civil proceedings were settled in December 2017, and the freezing order was then discharged. The Crown Prosecution Service, which is the principal prosecuting agency in England and Wales, then became interested, alleging that the investment scheme was a criminal Ponzi scheme. And we all know what Ponzi schemes are, just look at Bernard Madoff. And that Luckhurst had stolen funds invested in it from his clients. That's certainly the nature of the allegation that they've made. The CPS obtained a restraint order. Now, restraint orders are governed by sections 40 to 47 of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, which I mentioned earlier. Now, this was obtained against Luckhurst, which permitted him... A restraint order restrains in the, uh, the use of their property. It's similar to a freezing order, but it's a criminal... It's an order pursuant to criminal proceedings. It permitted him weekly living expenses of £250 with no provision for the payment of legal expenses, which, as I understand the position, is not uncommon in the restraint order context. Now, you can ask for a variation, which Luckhurst did, allowing for £3,000 to be used for the payment of civil legal fees on uh, a matter which has arisen on facts out of which the criminal sanction or the criminal prosecution uh, is uh, said to have arisen. Here, Luckhurst had a possible problem. Section 41, subsection 4 of the Proceeds of Crime Act states that there's no provision under a restraint order to allow for legal fees to pay for a defence 
in the offence under investigation or not to make provision for any legal expenses which relate to that offence. So that was the basis of the challenge. Now, the Supreme Court held that the correct interpretation of Section 41, subsection 4 of the Proceeds of Crime Act does not prevent the variation of a restraint order to meet reasonable legal expenses in the civil proceedings, even where the civil proceedings actually arise from the same or similar facts as the allegations of the criminal offence which gave rise to the restraint order. What the Supreme Court decision does is that it essentially clarifies that Section 41, subsection 4 of the Proceeds of Crime Act operates as a prohibition on seeking variation of a restraint order where the application relates to legal advice, payment of legal fees relating to the criminal offence of which the person is accused and not to connected civil proceedings. It is, I suppose, a practical and sensible response in the circumstances, and to hold otherwise would unduly restrict the operation of the law, when it is the case that the same facts can and do frequently generate concurrent criminal and civil litigation. That's it for this week's Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. Please subscribe if you want to, wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll hear from me, mild cold permitting, next week. 